We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with your guest host, Ross Feingold. I'm joined in the studio by New Bloom editor Brian Hui. Good evening, Brian. Thanks for having me. And on the phone by ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Donovan, hey, thanks, good evening, Ross. thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be talking about the new power parties, Legislator Hong and Chairman Chu departing, the Taipei Aerospace and Defense Technology Exhibition opening, the latest in Taiwan government's response to the ongoing events in Hong Kong, garbage collectors demand better worker safety, and proposed rules at the Taichung Tourism Bureau ordering employees to be nicer to each other. But we'll begin with presidential politics. Of course, the presidential election will be the big story in the upcoming months. And the big story over the last few days is the meeting this weekend proposed between Taipei City Maricoa and Je, Tycoon Terry Go. Both of them rumored to be presidential candidates and former legislative UN Speaker Wang Jingping, who might be cooperating with the other two. Brian, what do you make of all this, this big weekend summit between three potential presidential candidates? They can't all run for president. That's right. And so it's a question, who will run in what order? Uh, who, what is the hierarchy exactly? Is it going to be Go running as a presidential candidate with Ko subordinate to him or vice versa? Uh, Ko running as the presidential candidate and Go being his vice president. And I think that with these three individuals, these are people with large egos. And so it's a question how they will cooperate. I am almost surprised to begin with that they would be willing to talk and sit down and discuss discuss some plans for possible cooperation. Um, with Go, he has he is Taiwan's literally the richest man. Um, Ke Wenzhou recently started a new political party, the Taiwan People's Party. And Wang Jingping is the former, uh, the former head of the Taiwanese faction of the KMT. And so he has these kind of different networks, um, clientels networks and political networks across all of Taiwan. And so how do they cooperate? And I'm actually surprised Wang is in the mix um, because it is usually centered around speculation. Will it be Go running or co-running or what kind of cooperation between the two of them. You seem really certain that one of the two or one of the three is going to be running for president, Brian. It's a good question. Uh, I'd be kind of surprised after a meeting like this if uh, nothing happens of it. But it, you can never really say it is possible. Um, for example, Ko forming the political party is thought by many to be a sign that he does intend to run for president down the line. You do need a political party to back you to have the kind of networks needed to mobilize supporters if you do want to run for president. And Go is speculated to have the financial resources to just launch his own campaign without a uh, being part of a political party per se. And so, yeah. Don Donovan, you have that certain view that one of those three will be running for president and I guess one of those three will be the vice president? Well, the easy answer is yes, because already Wang Jinping is running for president right now. Um, now, it, it, that, that's the, the interesting part about this whole, the, this whole dynamic, is that Wang Jinping has continued going around the country, setting up um, supporters' offices in each of the different cities and counties. And um, now he, he himself has admitted that there's a difficult path, because he's, he, he wants to remain a KMT member. He is currently running for president, and he has claimed that he's going to run to the end. And on top of that, uh, he pulled out of the KMT primary, saying that basically it was rigged um, in favor of certain candidates, who obviously would be Han Guoyu. Um, <clears throat> so we've got uh, somebody who already is running for president. We've got Go and Ke, who both – now, Go failed in the KMT primary, so he was running for president, and he may or may not re-enter the race. 
Kerr has said himself that he's seriously considering running. Um, now, I think it's going to be either Go or Kerr are going to run, but not both. Um, Kerr has said himself that he would he would like to see Go run, um, and he he's a little bit iffy on whether he, whether or not he wants to leave the position of Taipei Mayor. I don't think I, I take him at his word that he doesn't want to be vice president presidential. Uh, nominee, uh, because the position of Taipei mayor is uh, is a more powerful, more important position than, than VP. He has also repeatedly come out and said certain things along the lines of, uh, of Terry Goh needs to divest himself of his interest in China, or he has to take steps to uh, make sure that the public understands that Go is not, not too beholden to China. So it, to me, it looks like Ke is setting up Go for a run. Now, uh, for Wang Jinping, uh, he was riding high after the local elections last year. Uh, he backed uh, Han Guoyu, and he, for the first time ever, managed to pull together the, the patronage factions. And so essentially he had the momentum and the power in the party after they had that massive sweep. You just took one look at the map after the last election, and you could see that Wang Jinping and his uh, friends in the, in the patronage networks had really pulled strings and done a great job at um, putting the KMT into a great position. Uh, and then Wang Jinping essentially managed to uh, stab him in the back by stealing away Han Guoyu, putting the pressure on Han Guoyu to become the presidential candidate, which then meant that uh, Han Guoyu was, is now more or less in uh, Wu Duanyi's camp. So at the end of the day, Wang Jinping now is back on the outs. He is claiming that he is looking for heaven to uh, open a path for him to the presidency. Um, as, so really what it all boils down to for each of these three people is what are their primary motivations. Go wants to be president. Ke wants to get things done. Um, so for him, he might be willing to stay with uh, Taipei mayor, or uh, he might be amenable to being offered the position of premier because that's a, you know, that's a step up from Taipei mayor. Wang Jinping, he needs to make sure he's not going to – I don't think he's going to work with Ke alone – uh, because Ke doesn't have enough m- money or patronage to offer to the to the patronage um, uh, uh, factions that that Wang, Wang Jinping is so close to. Go timing has the money, uh, so basically uh, the three of them together can pull together quite a bit. So essentially, Go has the money. <laughs> Wang Jinping has the uh, the ground game. He's got already elected positions, uh, people in position. In you know on the ground already elected, he's got a, a massive network of people that he can rely on. If Go to, you know turns on turns on the tap, the money's flowing, then his factions are getting because they what they want primarily is money and power. Go's got the money, Wang's got the ground game, Ke's got the younger demographic, and the three of them could pull together something that makes a lot of sense. Now, at the end of the day there, then what does that leave Wang Jinping? Uh, Wang Jinping gets three things out of, out, of, out of this kind of arrangement. One is he gets patronage for the patronage factions. Uh, number two, he gets revenge on Han Guoyu and Wu Duanyi, who've stabbed him in the back. And number three, this opens up the possibility that if Han Guoyu's uh, presidential campaign starts to falter in a serious way, and Terry Goh at the head of the ticket 
is uh, is looking like he will be is doing far better than Han Guoyu, or uh, Terry Go actually becomes the president. This leaves open the possibility of a reverse a reverse merger or takeover of the KMT. In spite of the fact that Wu Duanyi could last, he theoretically should be able to stay as chair until 2021. Uh, he could actually be the, uh, uh, the, if the party sees that their candidate is faltering and they're going to want Terry Go back in the party, the price would be Wang Jinping as party chair. But Donovan, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen specifically on Sunday? Because we've seen these three politicians you know, rotating in and out of running for president, it seems, uh, circling around each other for potential cooperation. And, and even a question of did you have a phone call, did you meet, <laughs> becomes this great you know, uh, focus of media speculation. And then their spokesperson or the specific individuals involved don't even give a straight answer. Are, are they going to have a press conference on Sunday and say, here's what we agreed to? That's a great question. Uh, in fact, both of those are great questions. Uh, the thing is, is that you've got three big egos. You've got three. Um, you've got three different agendas. You've got three different ideologies. So it, it's tough to make this all work. The way that this all works, calculus-wise, is in terms of power. Um, it doesn't work in ideology, and it doesn't seem to work uh, on personality. But they could make it happen. And if they do, this would be a fascinating development because you'd see a very different political force uh, emerge in Taiwan's politics. But we don't know. And the thing is, is you know, unless you're inside that meeting or inside these three people's heads, what they're going to end up doing is anyone's best guess. Brian, how long could they wait to make a decision? <laughs> That's a good question. I think that also a lot of these meetings are really for the press, um, because again, just as mentioned, these leader, these political leaders can actually talk behind the scenes. They can make a phone call or chat on Skype or, or just text message each other. I don't know how it works. But um, they don't actually need to meet physically. And this is oftentimes, I think, to, to gauge the public reaction to such a meeting. And then after that, maybe they will be able to evaluate more clearly how the public will respond if they do align as political forces. Um, but I think the thing to add is that the uncertain factor might also be the KMT and how that reacts to that. Uh, it's former, once former presidential primary candidates and one of the current members met. Uh, there's all this talk of potentially replacing Han down the line if he goes a little too crazy, uh, as occurred previously in, in 2016. And so I think that's actually the biggest uncertainty. And I think it's also to see how the KMT will react to this. Well, we'll move on from presidential politics to legislative UN politics and talk about goings on at the new power party. First, legislator Lim left the party a few weeks ago. More recently, legislator Hong from Taichung left the party, along with the chairman of the party, Chairman Chu, leaving. Who's in charge, Brian? Brian, you know a lot about New Power Party. That's Tell right. Us what's um, going and on the, there? The other thing I would add is that uh, Galo Iyong, uh, their other uh, legislator, was removed on uh, concomitant. Well, well she's suing. Service. She's suing to stop that's right, it. Right? That's right. That's um, right. And so then they're suddenly down from five legislators to two legislators, and you need three legislators to caucus, and suddenly to have less legislators than the People First Party. And so it's actually very surprising to me that these splits emerged so suddenly and unexpectedly right before elections with the new power party. Um, that was unexpected. Um, it actually does show that the current leadership has had these long issues with communication, and that there's this breakdown, and that the central leadership of the, the new power party, which is still concentrated within the legislators, was actually uh, developing rival factions, and they all just sort of left. Uh, they were able to unite to leave the party 
without being accountable to the party base in that sense. And so a split has opened up. Uh, it's a question who will be the next leader of the new power party. Huang Guochang, the remaining powerhouse of the new power party, is now public stating that he might not run for re-election at all, which he had suggested in the past, and now he might actually follow on through. He's claiming that the director of his office in Siju will run in his place, uh, leaving a question like, what will he do then? Um, Xu Yongming probably would not, the remaining legislator apart from that, probably would not be... I think someone that people would follow as the party leader answers a real question. I think a lot of now actually it turns to the city councilors, the younger generation of the party that are actually calling for party unity right now, usually individuals in their 20s or 30s. But then there's the question that they're more junior, uh, less political experience. And so they can they hold the, the tide in terms of the party? But what are they trying to hold? What does this party even stand for at this point? Uh, I think actually the issue is that the party has become fairly large. In a few years, it had become Taiwan's third largest party. And so what they would want to preserve actually is the network, which has developed uh, the mobilization networks, the resources, and so forth. It sounds, like, is, wait, it sounds like you're talking about Wang Jingping's patronage <laughs> It does, network. it does. But I think that's also the way political parties work. So that's the thing that might be too valuable to thought lost. I think it is possible, for example, for these younger politicians to try and, let's say, form a different third party. But what then is lost is the claim to be the legacy party of the 2014 Sunfire Movement, uh, the political capital based on that. Um, and also this kind of sense of momentum of a rising young generation that would be broken. That being said, I mean, if the party dissolves, I don't think these politicians are going to go away. It's probably likely they would actually eventually become DPP politicians. That's a great segue over to you, Donovan. They won't go away. So Legislator Hong, she's resigned from the party, but she's going to seek re-election. Uh, how do the voters in Taichung feel about her leaving the party? And will they still support her uh, if she runs as, as an unaffiliated candidate? Well, I mean, there's no polling, so, I mean, we don't have any numbers or data, um, but she, she she gets quite a bit of press love, um, and she seems to be well-liked. I mean, I've never heard anyone really say anything bad about her. Uh, she's actually, uh, my, I actually live in her district, um, and, and people seem to be fairly positive on her. However, her, uh, her opponent is vice mayor and uh, was previously held the, the same district uh, as legislator for 17 years before she was ousted. So she's got a formidable opponent. Um, I mean, really, at the end of the day here with the new power party is, um, you know, I mean, I, I think really everybody seems to be concentrating right now on, uh, Huang, you know, Huang Guochang seems to have, between him and Freddie Lee, they, uh, sorry, Freddie Lim, have pretty much shaken the ideological tree. Um, the you know he's he came out and he stated I'm not going to you know we you know I I will leave the party if the NPP cooperates with the DPP and becomes a, a quote little green party, um, and then Freddie Lim threw down the gauntlet and said well if we're, if the NPP is not going to come out in favor of supporting Tsai Ing-wen, I'll, you know then I I'm sorry I have to leave. And then the, oh, but they everyone, did. But they did come out in support of Tsai after he left. Yeah. Well, yeah. here's the thing, though. No, they didn't. It, it, and that's the thing. Handy Chu entered negotiations, and then, uh, as the party chair, went into negotiations with the DPP, and then abruptly quit. Well, obviously, you know, uh, you know. Now, the, I, I personally, I don't think that the reasons that he gave for quitting to take responsibility for Lim leaving and you know some other things. Uh, I don't think that's why I left. I think he couldn't get the consensus inside the party or have you know anything that he could negotiate with the NPP with, uh, sorry, the DPP with. So basically, he had nowhere to go. And so the NPP internally, there's still people inside the NPP saying, why can't we get it together and come up with you know, a way forward? Are we working with the DPP or are we not? 
And uh, right now, Huang Guochang seems to be the spoiler here. Uh, but, you know, he can't technically right now run for chair again because he's not part of the 15-member c- committee that chooses the chair. He's pulled out of uh, running again because he strategically for himself, running for the Shijer, um a legislative seat he holds now. He's probably, I'm guessing he's holding out to, to be a party list uh, candidate, uh, you know, so the, the, there's, there's bloody internal divisions inside the party, and everyone's clamoring for, at the very least, a declaration of one way or the other. Are they working with the DPP or not? And I think Candy Chu's stepping down basically signals that they still can't get it together internally. Brian, yeah, are, are think, there young uh, voters looking at this who previously supported the party? Uh, it's a good question because it is quite, uh, that is actually one of the bigger issues. The question is, how do young voters vote? Um, not everyone is so in tune to politics. People sometimes do vote uh, as swing voters or as median voters, and they vote for alternatives that are to both the DPP and the KMT. And so young voters will sometimes vote for, for example, Koenja, uh, despite you know his perhaps perceived pro-China shift, because of the fact they are looking for alternatives. And I think the MPP is keenly aware that this support base is shared with Koenja. That's actually one of the biggest factors of unpredictability uh, regarding how to get votes. And so that actually plays, uh, that's affected how the, the MPP is so weirdly reluctant to be more overtly in support of the DPP or not. Um, I think that's right. I think, that's, as, as Donovan said, there are forces within the Central Committee that are very opposed to cooperation in the DPP still. That's why you have these people leaving. Um, and it's a question, though, because that then just, what is the future of the party? Will it be these younger voices that are able to win out? They're the ones that force the issue to begin with. Or is it actually this older generational cohort? I think that is actually the big split that is emerging. Um, I think also the big issue now is how will the DPP react to this? Particularly, the DPP is very interested in cooperating with or co-opting young youth activists. I mean, again, Ling Feifan became the deputy secretary general. That's the big example. Do they have the resources to run a campaign at this point for legislative candidates? This is actually something very interesting to me because I think that they were running out of money after the last set of elections uh, <laughs> because of the fact they ran so they ran 40 candidates, they got in 16, and this time around they are being much more conservative in the number of people they run. And sometimes the legislators they put forth, uh, the legislative candidates are sometimes announced somewhat strangely, like the one running in Danshri, I believe, is that just appeared out of nowhere. Nobody had any real advance warning. And uh, it's a question then, like, what is going on with this candidate? There are some candidates they put more resources into, such as the one running in uh, Songshan and Xingyi, who is more closely affiliated with Freddie Lim and who has been very active in criticizing Huang Guochang. Um, But it's a question as their overall strategy. It's been announcing legislators kind of one at a time, and it seems a little piecemeal to me. And speaking of resources, this week the Taipei Aerospace and Defense Technology Exhibition opened up, which is a biannual uh, opportunity for Taiwan's defense contractors as well as foreign defense contractors to showcase their wares here in Taiwan. Of course, President Tsai was at an opening event and was photographed testing out some of the equipment, including an F-16 simulator. Donovan, one of the most important defense companies in Taiwan, is based in Taichung Aerospace Industrial Development Corporation. What, what, what's special about this year's defense exhibition versus the past? Well, I, I'm, I'm not a, a defense analyst, so I couldn't really speak to the technology, um, uh, other than to note that the, there's been a surprising amount of press coverage this time. Um, it, and I suspect that has a lot to do with uh, China's recent behavior toward Taiwan. So there's, there's been a lot of focus, a lot of attention. There's been a lot more um, uh, statements by the U.S. in favor of Taiwan and helping Taiwan's uh, military uh, boost. Uh, it's just been announced that uh, 
that's that's finally after after campaigning on uh, boosting military spending to defend Taiwan's sovereignty um, to to three percent of GDP. Um, in, in fact, for the last three years, Taiwan has the Thai administration has kept spending pretty has barely budged above. Um, uh, Mind Joe's 1.9 something. She boosted a little bit. Apparently, this coming year now they're budgeting 2.3 percent. It's still far, you know, far cry from the 3 percent uh, originally promised, but it's it's a big boost. Um, there seems to be, as far as at the show itself, um, other than a lot more journalists showing up, <laughs> uh, there seems to be a lot of drones, uh, a lot of later late technology. Um, and of course, uh, uh, you know Taiwan following on its great tradition of uh, acronyms like the FU hyphen K fighter. Uh, they came out now with the indigenous male drone, uh, which <laughs> stands for the medium altitude long endurance drone. Uh, so they, uh, they they're keeping up the tradition of uh, uh, coming up with very. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I, 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 interesting uh, acronyms. Brian, how, how, how's this going down with um, you know the broader electorate? Are, are they excited because they saw President Tsai in a simulator? I don't know. I think that it might become a, a weekend excursion. It is in the Taipei uh, Expo Center, and so maybe some people will just go there and check it out with their families and that kind of thing. Uh, there is this kind of interest in... in you know, I think young kids, particularly young men uh, or boys, basically are interested in military toys, and so they can go there and see the actual thing. Um, I mean, if the military is smart, they would probably try to use this as advertising. Um, but yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's funny that Ty would go there and make a big show of trying out an F-16 simulator to try to pressure the U.S. to sell F-16s to Taiwan. Um, and again, the the trend of naming missiles after things like Sky Sword. Five or whatever um, that continues, and but, uh, but that yeah. all sounds better in Mandarin than English. It does, right? it does, but uh, it, it does. All, it, it all sounds very poetic, right? <laughs> a little, a little more poetic. But I also just wonder why why they always name uh, military hardware the things that they name them. I mean, this year they're talking about the the drone that flies and explodes and crashes the enemy and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, they always need a, a new. Uh, I mean, it also requires advertising. It requires advertising to get people interested in this stuff. I haven't actually really seen that in the city as much. Haven't seen uh, exhibition uh, advertising. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, Donovan, do you, do you get a sense that that people across Taiwan, Central Taiwan, they they actually are following? They care. They're excited that that this event helps them recognize the importance of investing in national defense. No. <laughs> um, you know, it's not exactly something you go down for a bowl of noodles and you're, you know, you're hanging out, uh, uh, you know, people sit and go, oh, hey, have you checked out the latest Jinxiang anti-radiation drone, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, I, I, I think that... I, I think that at best, really, what 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 the government's looking for is uh, is, is is reassuring the public that they're on top of it. We have to take a short break now, but we'll be back after these commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week with your guest host, Ross Feingold, joined by Brian Hui and Donovan Smith. 
Earlier this week, the Taiwan government spokespeople at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that they would provide assistance and other kinds of aid to the people of Hong Kong amid the ongoing protests. While I was sitting in the airport with my flight canceled from Hong Kong back to Taipei, I didn't receive any assistance for my EVA flight. But be that as it may, the next day, another government spokesperson over at the Mainland Affairs Council basically said our existing rules and procedures are sufficient to handle any humanitarian requests from the people of Hong Kong. So, Brian, which is it? What can the government of Taiwan do to help the people of Hong Kong amid the recent events? I think it's a good question. I think, for one, personally, I think they could formalize a process for asylum applications. This is a long-standing issue in Taiwan, and it, despite all this talk of it for years and years and years, nothing has happened. But doesn't and, that but doesn't that work to the government's advantage from the sense that uh, they have the flexibility because because it's on a very ad hoc case by case basis? If a person from Hong Kong or from China finds themselves in, in Taiwan and says, I need political asylum, I need this kind of protection, the government convenes an ad hoc process to adjudicate the request as opposed to having something more fixed. That's the- right. Uh, in theory, yes. I think that it, having an ad hoc process, then you can maybe turn people down. You can hope a story falls under the news radar and people don't notice. Uh, and in the meantime, sometimes, you know, you did have the incident of the uh, Chinese asylum seekers that were stuck in the airport for over 100 days. And they themselves seem to be rather confused about the process. And uh, just they, according to what they claimed when I talked to them a while ago, uh, the, the people in the airport didn't seem to know what to do with them. But behind the scenes, I think with the government, they were hoping they would quietly go back. Um, with Hong Kong, I think the issue is just forced because of the fact that it is known that upwards of 30 Hong Kongers have come to Taiwan already to try and escape um, from the Hong Kong government and the police after taking part in protest actions. Uh, There were rumors, actually, of this occurring right after the attempted occupation of the Hong Kong Legislative Council, LegCo, on July 1st, that there was already rumors immediately after it. Someone had come to Taiwan right after. But what do you mean by escape, Brian? You mean they're Um, they're just going to stay here as a tourist visa? Yes, and overstay the visa. And and remain here, or they're going to try and fly on to the U.S. or Canada Um, or the U.K.? It's actually, that's also the other very interesting thing, because the fact that the current set of protests is about an extradition uh, agreement that was to be uh, signed with China, and that was occurred because of a case within Taiwan in which Taiwan doesn't have an extradition agreement with Hong Kong, and so someone that killed somebody in Taiwan cannot be deported to face charges here. And so that actually made Taiwan the place people wanted to go to avoid uh, these charges in Hong Kong, which is very interesting. I mean, there's the case of the one localist that disappeared several two years ago and is apparently still in Taiwan just on a overstayed visa. And I think these cases might actually become more common. Uh, these these people that have come to Hong Kong, that's Taiwan, uh, upwards of thirty, according to the Apple Daily uh, last month, may actually just want to stay quiet and just to overstay their visas and and go about it that way in the absence of of any more process. And I think that actually there have probably have been much more cases of protesters coming to Taiwan since then. If if thirty had just come to Taiwan in July, I can only imagine the numbers risen. Donovan, there's direct flights from Hong Kong to Taichung. Have you seen uh, people from Hong Kong seeking asylum in Taichung? <laughs> well, I, I don't <laughs> hang out at the airport. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, it'll be a nationwide thing. Um, I mean, one issue that I think a lot of people are, are, are sort of forgetting here is that the rules for dealing with eth- you know, ethnically Han um, people here as far as citizenship and everyone else are different. The, there's a different set of standards and rules. And um, I think that uh, the way that the government here likes to deal with it, which I, I think Brian alluded to or, or you alluded to, is that they w- they'd like to keep their strategic ambiguity on this. Um, by not having a fixed asylum law, and Brian's written some good articles on this, 
um, you know, it, it means, unfortunately, the government's not taking a stand. But that may be exactly what the government wants, because, um, you know, this, you know, it, it, because it, it gets into this tricky territory of, is Taiwan going to be a magnet for uh, ethnic Chinese democracy, or is it Taiwanese you know, is Taiwan Taiwan? Is Taiwan China? Is it part of the, you know, a part of the ethnic Han or Sinosphere, and therefore has a special responsibility to Hong Kong or Hong Kong um, uh, activists or Chinese activists? You have the recent uh, Christians uh, fleeing persecution, and of course that gets all right back down to the whole identity issue in Taiwan politics. Um, so right now, I, I think that you know because you. I think the, the government is going to keep strategic ambiguity. They also get another advantage out of this when dealing with the rest of the planet as well. Um, you know, recently they were found to be uh, providing medical care to, uh, you know, to refugees seeking asylum in Australia. Um, and so it also gives them another opportunity to make friends or, you know, avoid uh, offending other people in other countries to keep diplomatic relations alive and, you know, and under the table diplomatic relations uh, ongoing, and it gives them another another tool which they can, uh, uh, you know, impact all that. So they're not they're they're not likely, I think, to make a law soon, even though morally it sh- they should. I find interesting about this is, is uh, you always see some media reports that cite the number of people who, who are not seeking asylum but have applied for ba- what's basically an investor visa. And the threshold for Hong Kong people uh, is quite low. Uh, it's only 200 uh, – sorry, 2, two million NT. Uh, you could qualify initially for residence, which after a short period of time you could convert to, to citizenship. So, Brian, does that go to you – know, Brian was saying earlier, you know, there are different rules for ethnic Han. And actually it's not that difficult for Hong Kong people with a little bit of money to, to get residency here and, and actually become uh, ID card holder citizens. Something like um, two years they can become a citizen. Yeah. There's also yeah, other, other means. I've longer and I'm still not, you know, eligible <laughs> <laughs> and that, with, with anything anywhere near that ease, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's also other means of trying to stay in Taiwan. You could become a student, for example. That is one option. Um, you become a student somewhere, may even just pursue a graduate school or just try to get for a second degree. That's another way of staying here. So there are ways to stay here which do not necessarily involve a formal asylum rep- application, just maybe not everyone can apply for that. How about a work visa through New Blue, That's also- <laughs> New Blue Media? You could hire some of these uh, fleeing protesters to write for, for you. Um, that, is, uh, that is actually another possibility that has been floated, that they might find jobs somewhere. There might be some sympathetic NGO that can provide jobs for them. Um, and there will always be questions raised about how will these people support themselves in Taiwanese society and so forth. Um, at the same time, I think that this issue will probably become very large in the near future. Um, just the government is facing issues regarding five asylum seekers in Taiwan in June or so, and now reportedly there are over thirty. And so this is this number has just become very large overnight. And I think a lot of people will come to Taiwan in this kind of uh, without having done their research, without actually having looked into what the process is. And eventually, one of these cases will make the news and will become very big. And I think that this is uh, it is one of the things people start getting out actually right after big events in which they're implicated in. Uh, just even the Sunfire Movement, people are actually leaving the country after being caught in big events. So I, I can tell from experience that this is actually uh, eventually going to become an issue. Well, speaking of, issue, time bomb, yeah. speaking of issues that are festering, uh, garbage collectors were protesting earlier this week about proposed rule changes 
changes that did not provide them an adequate amount, in their view, of worker safety. Their big stink seems to be that the rules would still allow their supervisors to order them to stand on the back of a garbage truck. Oh, when I was growing up, this was a common sight in the United States to see garbage men standing on the side of the truck because it allowed them to jump off and throw the trash from a pail at the side of a road into the back of the truck. Donovan, can you, can you try and break that down, what, what the big stench is? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I, they, they, they say that there's, uh, I believe it was five uh, people have died in this in in the field over the last X number of years. I forget how many years it was, but so I mean, clearly, it, it, apparently, it is. If you look at those statistics, that is relatively high mortality rate. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up with exactly the same thing in, in the U.S. and Canada. You know, there, there would be, and it was uniformly men who would be standing on the, on the side of the garbage truck. Um, and same here. Moved to Taiwan, it was the same thing. Uh, the only difference being is that here there was musical accompaniment um, and no ice cream to go with it. So, um, I, you know, I, 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 they're they're campaigning for the safety of it. When you look at that number of the five five people dying over a relatively short number of years, uh, that is concerning. Um, but it, 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 I, I guess I kind of feel like I'm I'm looking at this question uh, is. You know, knowing that it, it, it doesn't look like it would be that dangerous if you're physically ready for it. In other words, if you're, you know, there's a lot of jobs that require physically jumping on and off a vehicle or, you know, uh, you know something along these lines. It, it seems like, I, I'm be, I, I kind of wondered, are they vetting the people who who have these jobs properly or was there an accident with the maybe the drivers weren't pro- pro- properly vetted in that they stopped too quickly or sped up too fast? Or I'd be kind of curious to know what exactly happened in how these these people passed away. Brian, isn't this just the latest in a long run of of uh, you know, kind of blue collar factory workers or even uh, flight attendants? You know, we just see this trend: people in different industries saying. I want more rights. I want shorter working hours. I want more safety protection. So now it's just the garbage, garbage, the trash collector's turn. Um, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, I think that uh, garbage collecting is is usually one of the most hazardous jobs in any country. It's usually in the top ten. Um, U.S. It's like top number seven or something like that. I think. Well, 30, but, but, but I'm going to interrupt yeah. you there and say it's actually a very higher desired job in parts of the U.S. That's at true. least because it's, it, it's, it's unionized. It's it's high pay, good you know, civil service protection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the question then is is what are the lacking safety measures for garbage? Truck, I mean, garbage collectors. Is it actually jumping off and on the off and on, uh, on and off the truck? Um, the, the, usually, fatalities come from traffic accidents being hit uh, by cars while you're in the process of collecting garbage. And I think um, if it is actually five deaths in so many years, that it might actually not be too bad. And I think that just. Uh, um, it is a question then: what what can be done to improve the workplace safety of of garbage collectors? I think that there should be. Uh, a push for workplace safety to be improved in any profession, really. Uh, Donovan, is, is garbage collection done the same way in central Taiwan, southern Taiwan, the way it is here in Taipei, where, where if your home doesn't have some kind of uh, uh, maintenance staff and a centralized clash co- trash collection where they take care of it? Uh, we see a lot of people here in Taipei that congregate at the street corner. You, know, you all get together, you chat with your neighbors, and you, you wait for the singing garbage truck. Is that how it's done in Taichung and rural yeah, parts of Taiwan? I think actually we've been on air when the garbage truck went by in my neighborhood, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, very much so. Um, in fact, it, it probably even more so than in Taipei, where um, 
but yeah, th- that's exactly the way it's done. Yeah, it's the truck comes by. There's somebody you know hanging on the back there. Uh, people are chatting and holding their their garbage or chasing after the truck uh, is another common scenario. And before we end tonight, we'll talk again about another story from Taichung, which was the Taichung Tourism and Travel Bureau apparently issuing a, issuing a memo instructing its staff to be more polite to each other, not even to the public. Donovan, what's up with this? <laughs> well, yeah, this this is, I, I, you know, I, it, it, it smells to me just like a, like a simple uh, bureaucratic <laughs> uh, silliness. Um, you know, I, I, I understand if they sent out a memo, you know, to be uh, friendly to the public, but it, it is a little bit weird. Uh, tell you know that they ha- that they actually felt that they had to tell uh, the staff there uh, to be friendly to each other. I, there is a potential concern um, in that underneath the surface, you know what what's going on here that people felt that they had to do this. It, it, there's one of two possibilities. The simplest one is just simply that uh you know a, a higher level bureaucrat um thought that this would be a good idea to promote general friendliness uh, amongst the staff but there were some references I, I noticed in the media coverage to specific disagreements going on inside uh the department where people were felt that they were slighted or offended now whether or not these are you know, people being oversensitive or whether or not people were genuinely being offensive or where that line is, I couldn't tell you, obviously not not involved. Um, and recently, you know, there's been a new administration has come in. There were some complaints that some of the people appointed to some of the mo- uh, more important positions in the new government came from uh, the patronage factions uh, that we were talking about earlier. Um, and they come from a different culture, so there may be a culture clash going on that could be playing a part of it. Um, but I couldn't say for sure because the the coverage has been too vague. So, Brian, what, what's going on here? <laughs> what, what, are, 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 is Taijong a place we could still go for tourism, or, or the tourism bureau there is just not nice? <laughs> it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Well, it's um, an internal thing. You just don't want to go into the office. Well, 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 actually, in all serious, Brian, sorry, I'm just going to have to say, you're too young to remember this, but when Donovan and I first came to Taiwan thousands of years ago, uh, (laughs) municipal and central government and back then provincial government office employees, they had this reputation that they were sitting uh, on a higher desk level than you. So when you went to a service counter, they were usually looking down at you, and uh, they didn't really particularly have a great customer service (laughs) attitude. Uh, And very often people say, you know, Chun Shui Bien, when he was mayor of Taipei City, did a lot to change that. He would stride in to some random office of the municipal government and, and chide the employees for um, not providing good customer service to, to, to the citizens. So uh, you know, I thought people in Taiwan are all really nice. Uh, I just don't understand, you know, why, why are these Taichung City employees at each other's necks? I've actually heard that. Yeah, I've heard that more than once. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it's quite funny to me. Um, but I think it's also it's also the uh, the regulations are somewhat absurd. I mean, shaking hands and having to stare into each other's eyes for three seconds. I think that's one of the regulations that I don't think if there are workplace disagreements or cultural disagreements in the workplace, I don't think that's going to solve it. So I wonder who is it that proposed these these solutions? How did they think this would work and not 
you know, bringing in a workplace professional to manage disagreements or whatever. Well, as Donovan alluded to, is this just because of a, you know, the, the new the new uh, government that came into to, uh, Taichung City? Uh, obviously, DPP lost the election, so you have a new group of uh, you know a mayor and her her team of political appointees. So, is this actually a Guomindang DPP kind of different culture thing, Brian? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> It could be. It's not impossible. Political grudges do run deep. But I hope that in the uh, government, I mean, people can rise above these these political disagreements, particularly uh, presenting an outward face to tourists for Taiwan. Uh, Donovan, so Taichung's still safe for tourists, notwithstanding the uh, uh, questions about the attitude of t- tourism bureau staff? <laughs> yes. I mean, the thing is... Uh, actually, Donovan, I, I'm I, giving I, you I a chance to plug it. Plug something. Plug some tourism in Taichung. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I've done, I, you know, I've, I, I actually have done quite a, quite a bit of business with uh, uh, people in the Taichung city government, and by and large, they're very professional, uh, regardless of the administration. Um, so, no, I, I actually can speak fairly highly for a lot of the people who work in the city government, the, the civil servants. They're not they're not strongly, you know, they they, they do their job apolitically. Um, you know, but some. But when you do have a new administration come in, the people at the top sometimes clash with the existing civil servants. Now, I don't know if that's what's going on here. Um, and you know, and also I found that each different department has its own culture too. So you know, sometimes they move people from one department to another, and there's there's issues there. And you know, so it, it, this is one of those stories where I think there's a lot going on under the surface that we don't know about, and it could just simply be as simple as one bizarre bureaucrat, you know, issuing, uh, you know, kind of random, uh, you know, random regulations to there's a serious underlying problem. And that's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. I've been joined in the studio by New Bloom's Brian Hui. Thank you, Brian. Good night. And on the phone by ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Thank you, Donovan. All right. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Ross Feingold. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.